Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the joy of our desiring. And here's our humble prayer. Would you please be front and center right now? In your name we worship. Amen. In the midst of this dark, suffocating pandemic, you want to see a beautiful Jesus moment? I'm going to show you a picture. Well, you've probably already seen the picture, this now gone viral picture of the physician in that COVID-19 ICU ward, COVID patients everywhere, and an elderly man. The doc is holding him tight. The man is crying. It's Thanksgiving Day a few days ago, and the whole world has seen it now. I want to put it on the screen. Can't wait. Here it is. This is right on the website there. You see the doctor. This is, uh, this is Dr. Joseph Varan. He is, the, he is the chief of staff at United Medical Center, Houston, Texas, all right? He's holding that elderly patient. The man is crying. PPE, they call it, this, this protective uh, equipment, personal protective equipment. Doctor is covered from head. Just a little bit of uh, skin there, covered from head to toe. And the man is sobbing. Wow. Here's the backstory from, from the website. Let me just read it to you, just a line or two. Uh, Joseph Ron, doctor treating co- coronavirus patients at, tex- at a Texas hospital, was, was working his 252nd day in a row. This doc has not taken a day off since the pandemic began. I want to tell you something. We just blow by our frontline medical workers and say, well, of course, they're getting paid. That's what they're supposed to do. You're not supposed to work 250 days in a row. Nobody in their right mind works that unless you have a passion that's driving you. So he walked into the intensive care unit on Thanksgiving Day, and he sees this elderly patient, he's telling the interviewer now, out of his bed and trying to get out of the room. And he's crying, Varan said. So I get close to him, and I ask him, why are you crying? And the man says, I want to be with my wife. Yeah, really? Ah. So I just grab him, and I hold him. I was feeling very sorry for him. I was feeling very sad, just like him. Eventually, he felt better, and he stopped crying. I don't know why I haven't broken down, the doctor said. My nurses cry in the middle of the day. I cry just thinking about them crying, don't you? Veron said that the isolation of the COVID-19 unit is difficult for many patients. When you're an elderly individual, it's more difficult because you're alone. Some of them cry. Some of them try to escape. We actually had somebody trying to crawl through the window the other day, and we caught them. Here's some good news. Veron said that the elderly man in the picture is doing much better. Hallelujah. We are hoping that before the end of the week, he'll be able to get out of the hospital. I want you to, I want you to give a good, long, hard look here. Pull that camera in as far as you can. I want you to take a good, long gaze at this picture. You know what you're looking at? That's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus coming down to this, this pandemic, sin pandemic, darkened and suffocating planet. And one day he came across an elderly man, and the elderly man was crying. And you know what Jesus did? He just instinctively grabbed the man and he hugged him. Sometimes when you're God, that's the only thing left to do. 
And that's what this doctor did. Oh, what a, what a metaphor of this crazy world we're living in right now. Welcome to Advent season 2020. And we're going to look at an ancient Christian, uh, Christmas rather, an ancient Christmas prophecy. And you're going to be thinking now when it was talking about 2,000 years ago. Check it out for yourself. Open your Bible to the, the gospel prophet of the Old Testament. We're talking about Isaiah. Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. Everybody knows these words. Come on. Everybody knows these words. In fact, drop down to verse 6 just to nail this as this is truly the Christmas prophecy. Take a look at this. Uh, Revelation, um, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us... Oh, who's changing the screen here? Oh, that's me. Okay. <laughs> Man, come on. You guys up there, change the screen. I'm ready. Oh, that's me. <laughs> All right. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given... And the government will be on his shoulders. Oh, boy. You remember that from Handel's Messiah. Straight out of Handel's Messiah. No, it's the other way around. Handel's Messiah is straight out of Isaiah 9. Come on. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he, this coming one, will be called Wonderful Counselor. You can sob on my shoulder, and I'll weep with you. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You say, Dwight, that ancient prophecy doesn't feel like today at all. It's because we skipped the opening verse. Let's go to the opening verse. This is verse, verse 2, same chapter. Isaiah writes, speaking of that time, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Boy, those words, deep darkness, does that feel like today or what? This, I mean, even pushing aside our personal circumstances, and we got, we got a room full of personal circumstances going on right now. There's enough to weep over without the pandemic. But does that not feel like life today on this planet? A people walking in darkness, in a land of deep darkness. The light is done. This sad, sad pandemic season, such confusion, such heartache. Such chaos. What could be more fitting than these words? Let's read them again. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Uh, uh, 700 years later, Matthew comes along, and he says, I love that verse. I'm going to use it. And Matthew, that's why we know the, that's why we know the words, because Matthew uses it in Matthew chapter uh, 4, verse, uh, verse 16. You'll see the words. You could have left your finger in Isaiah 9, but here we are at Matthew 4, verse 16. And I need to be there myself. Matthew 4, come on. I want you to look it up in your Bible. Don't just take the screen's word for it. Matthew 4. Matthew 4. It always takes me a while to find these. All right, Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. Here we go. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Well, this sounds like what we just read. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, for them, a light has dawned. Do you see any difference between what we just read in Isaiah and what we, what we now read in Matthew? You can't see it by, by reading them back to back. Let's do a split screen because there is a significant difference, and you're going to catch it right now. Here's the split screen. There's Isaiah 9, and there's Matthew 4. Now, I want to show you something. Isaiah uses two strong, positive action verbs. Here they are. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawned. 
Matthew drops those strong action words and he takes another word, another word in the Greek. It's a word that, that describes a sluggish solitude. And it means to sit, to brood, sluggish, all alone solitude. Hey, wait a minute. You said, do I, you said it, it says sitting. NIV says living. Yeah, that's because they made a mistake, in my humble opinion. They said, we're going to interpret that. That just means living. No, no, no. This is a significant point. Let's not miss it. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. That's how it's supposed to read. The actual Greek reads. And on those living in the, sitting in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You say, Dwight, what in the world are you talking about? Let's let the, uh, the great commentator on the book of Matthew, Frederick Dale Bruner, his magisterial two-volume commentary, let's just see how, why, why he's making such a big deal of this. You'll see it. Okay, we just changed these to sitting because sitting is the actual. And some of you that have New America and you have the New King James, it all, they all say sitting. They got it right. But let's go to uh, Bruner now. Here's Bruner. Isaiah wrote, I'm quoting uh, Frederick Dale Bruner now. Isaiah wrote, the people who walk in darkness, Matthew writes, the people who sit in darkness because Matthew believes spiritual darkness is so thick it immobilizes. Whoa, are you serious? Keep reading. The verb to sit that Matthew has chosen, aptly denotes a sluggish solitude. In Matthew's reading, they are so far in the dark that they cannot even move. They sit in the darkness in a paralysis. Matthew is trying to tell us something. He's describing the psychosocial spiritual culture into which Christ has come. He's trying to tell us that this is a numbing. This is a suffocating darkness. And they're not walking. They're not living. They're just sitting there. Man, does this begin to feel like today? Mercy. Matthew's trying to describe Jesus' first coming, and I'm sitting here thinking of this culture before Jesus' second coming. A sluggish, numb suffocation. They're just sitting in the darkness. Uh, let's read it again. We've switched out the, the living into the right word. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And those sitting in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Oh boy, that's that that is so that is so graphic. Sitting in the land of the shadow of death. You know why this feels like so today? I'll tell you why. Because we are living, we are living in a death culture today. That's why. Do you understand that? This culture, these Gen Zers and everybody else on this planet, it's all about death. Everything's about death. We watch death all the time. It's in a news clip. The whole world gapes as they watch live video of George Floyd suffocating to death until he dies. The whole world sees it. The terrorists behead on camera a hostage. We are now so immersed in this death culture. Our music is death culture. Hollywood, our entertainment is death culture. We are so immersed in this, we don't know that there's a culture that doesn't have death in it. So why heaven is going to be so radically mind-blowing. Death is how we live. It's death everywhere. So what Matthew describes as the world when Jesus came the first time, you and I are instinctively saying, guess what? That's the world he's coming to the second time. Only it's worse today than then. 
And I suppose when they open up the Colosseum again and they show it live on TV, that we'll have finally reached the, the depths of debauchery that the culture back then had descended to. When it becomes entertainment, my suicides are shot on Facebook so that the world can see. Murders are committed on Facebook so that the world can see. We live in a death culture. This is, this is such a, a, a profound line. Let me show you how some other translations render it. This is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. People sitting in the shadowland of death. Well, like that. Here comes the New Living Translation. People sitting in a land where death casts its shadow. That's where you live. That's your address. One more. The NIV that we just read. People sitting in the land of the shadow of death. Mercy. Matthew thought he was describing the world when Jesus came the first time. We're thinking he's describing the world when Jesus comes the second time. Wow. Eugene Peterson, who died this year, brilliant, brilliant uh, writer, uh, in his rendition of the Bible called The Message. I like, the way, I like it the way he puts it here. People sitting out their lives in the dark saw a huge light. Sitting in that dark, dark country of death, they watched the sun come up. Ladies and gentlemen, in that one single line is the summation of the gospel story. You have it all right here. Read it again, Dwight. I will. People sitting out their lives in the dark saw a huge light. Sitting in that dark, dark country of death, they watched the sun come up. How beautiful is that? Don't you, can you, can you just see it? It's pitch dark and all of a sudden, psh, from the east, here it comes. You've, you've watched the sunrise. You've seen that little crest just above the eastern horizon. And as it grows, the sky gets brighter, brighter. They watch. Psh, it's a huge light. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Into our darkness, he rises. Like the sun we've been praying would come after this long, torturous midnight. That's Jesus, the son of righteousness. I scribbled on this page years ago, this line. I love it from Desire of Ages. Let me put this on the screen for you. The whole world is brighter for his presence. Isn't that beautiful? The whole world is brighter for his presence. But isn't it intriguing? You think about this. Why didn't Matthew put Isaiah 9-2 in the nativity story? That would have been the logical place to put it because unto us a child is born, yada, yada, yada. Why didn't you put it here? No, no, no. He says, I want to wait. I want to wait till Jesus begins, not his Judean ministry. I want to wait till he begins his Galilean ministry where it's half lost, half saved. Pagan Jew, pagan Jew, pagan Jew. And there Jesus goes for his ministry. I want to wait till he starts it there, and then I'm going to quote Isaiah 9, verse 2. My, oh, my. It's as if, it's as if somehow the good news of the gospel, we have, we have to grasp this. Jesus didn't go to where light was already there. Jesus went to where there was no light. Most of us want to settle where there's plenty of light so we never have to worry about darkness. We're the exact opposite of Jesus. He said, give me where it's dark. That's where I want to be. Mercy. Twice in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Yo, you, you, you people listening to me? He says, I am the light of the world. And when they hang him up on that tree at Calvary, in the blackest midnight of human history, 
Never did that light shine brighter than on the cross. That's the gospel. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Come to me. Your guilt is gone. Come to me. Your fears are gone. Come to me. Your hopelessness is gone. Come to me. You're going to live now. You're not going to end your life. You're going to live because you want to live. And I want you to live. Come to me and I'll give you rest. I am the light of the world. People sitting out their lives in the dark saw a huge light. Oh, I love that. Sitting in that dark, dark country of death as we are, they watched the sun come up. Hallelujah. That sun is going to come up again. And Jesus steps up to me and says, yo, Dwight, let's talk. I wish you'd love the world for me. Do you mind hugging them for me? Come on, just be like Dr. Joseph Veron. Just do it impulsively. We now know that Dr. Veron did not know that the photographer was in that room. The photographer from Getty Images had been assigned make a, do a photo essay, uh, Thanksgiving in America, pandemic style. He was embedded in that ICU. Doc didn't know that. That, that is some setup shot. That doc was doing what instinctively came to him at that moment. I have an elderly patient here. He's sobbing. Come here, let me hug you. Why don't you go out and love the world the same way? Come on, you don't need some kind of big strategy. What do you think this is? You got to have some kind of PhD to figure out how to love? No, no, no. You just love the world for me, Dwight. It's a dark world out there. You love the world for me. You be love on the move for me. That's what I want you to be. I want you to be love on the move for me. Hug anybody that comes into your space that looks like they need a hug. Just love the world for me. Love on the move. That was Jesus. That was Dr. Joseph Ferran. Love on the move. Instinctively. Yeah, but come on, do I time out, time out, time out, please. Man, you're waxing eloquent. You don't even understand. We're in, a, we're in a lockdown right now. This is a pandemic. We cannot go out into that world to love it. Too bad. Why? Well, you have raised a huge point to which I cannot even respond. That point is so significant. I have, no, I have no answer for it. We sat together, a group of pastors and chaplains. We meet every Monday afternoon, don't we, guys? We meet every Monday afternoon to have worship together. And last Monday, we're just saying, what do we do? The pandemic hits, has hit our campus strong again. When these kids come back, what are we going to do? We had a few good ideas, I thought. Nothing earth-shaking. What are we supposed to do? We're locked down, do you understand? We have no idea how, this, how long this pandemic is going to last. When does it lift? I do not know. Although I will tell you that ever since this pandemic, in my reading of Great Controversy, the first half of this pandemic, there's a thought that has been planted in my mind, and I'm going to get a little brave here and share it with you. I could be in trouble. I'm wondering if, in fact, it's going to be just like it was with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that mysterious military move. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, is the, is the one who captured the details that allow us to know the, 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 the reason behind this mysterious military move. What are you talking about, Dwight? Here we go. 60, 66 AD, the Roman general Cestius Gallus marched 66,000 Roman soldiers from Syria southwest to Jerusalem. He's going to take Jerusalem. That is a huge army. Do you understand 66,000? That's how many people are in the army. There was some Jewish resistance along the way. 
They have to do, fight some skirmishes. But eventually, Cestius, with those 66,000, is able to penetrate the city, not the whole city. They got up into the northwest corner of Jerusalem. But he cannot take the Temple Mount. And anybody that knows anything about Middle Eastern history knows if you want Jerusalem, you have to take the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock, you've got you to take that. You, if you don't take that, you don't take it. He cannot take the Temple Mount. And so with his 66,000, they surround Jerusalem. The Roman army surrounds Jerusalem. They besiege the city. And get this. Nine days later, Cestius pulls the troops off of that siege and marches to the coast. Nobody to this day is quite sure what was going on. A mystery move. Well, the moment the Romans leave, the Jewish resistors inside the walled city of Jerusalem, they're out the gates, charge, and they pursue the Romans. And there is a mighty skirmish. But while the Romans and the Jewish resistors are gone, the Christians in the city of Jerusalem remember the words of Jesus, Luke 21, 20. And Jesus said, and when you see the city circled by armies, you know the end is near. They remember those words. They said, let's, let's, let's go. They're protagonists. They're antagonists. They're gone. The Jews are gone. The Romans are gone. And the Christians slip out of the city. They go east. They cross the Jordan River. They move to a little city called Pella, where they establish a new, a, 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 a new colony of Christians. Amazing. And do you know what? Listen to this. Quoting Great Controversy. That apocalyptic classic tells us not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem when General Titus returned in 70 AD to besiege and sack and slaughter that city. Not one Christian perished. Jesus had told them, you just watch. You'll know your moment. And when that siege was lifted, that was their moment. You say, Do I, what does this have to do with the pandemic? Come on, I'm not, I'm not into Roman history. Ah, but I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Could it be that this pandemic is going to lift sometime? I mean, we all believe that. I don't know if it's soon or later. I have no idea. But I'm wondering if that lifting will make possible a small window of opportunity for the people of God to be about our Father's business, the, the, the remnant community of the apocalypse, to suddenly be mobilized, pinned down. But now the, the forces that have pinned them down have disappeared. They go out as a cue. Get the world now while the window's open. I'm brooding on this. If Jesus equated, listen to me, if Jesus equated the destruction of Jerusalem with the end of the world, as we know he does in Matthew 24, he conflates the two. We're not sure. Is he talking about Jerusalem here or the end of the world? We, we don't know. He mixes them up. If Jesus does that intentionally, could it be, and that's a key caveat, by the way, could it be? The lifting of this global pandemic will be but a brief window for our end game mission. Mysteriously, it's gone. Where'd it go? It's gone. I'm just wondering, I'm just thinking out loud with you. 
Uh, one of my favorite lines in, 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 great Converse, in Great Controversy is this line I'm, I'm about to read to you, but I see that I left a verse out. And that's the thing when you're doing the slide changing. They can skip it up there if I miss it. I can't miss it here. Do you know what? Twice in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am the light, I am the light. Here we are, Matthew. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Here we are, Matthew 4. Great darkness. If you just jump over to the Sermon on the Mount, look at verse 14. Jesus not only says twice in the Gospel, I am the light of the world. Do you know what he also says? You are the light of the world. There's no claim in Matthew for Jesus to be the light of the world. He doesn't claim it himself, only in John twice. But he does say, you are the light of the world. Boy, I'm glad we caught that because we would have gone out here and say, doesn't, this, this doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't concern me. It's not about me. No, Jesus says, it is about you. I am that great. I'm that huge light. But you're my light. Like Dr. Joseph Veron, you are my light. But this great line in uh, Great Controversy, servants of God with their faces lighted up. Don't you love this line? Speaking of just before Jesus comes, servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, this national, this global mobilization that this line predicts could not possibly happen in a lockdown pandemic. It could not happen. You can't hasten from place to place now. I can't even cross the street to say, say hi to my neighbor. Hey, Dwight, you don't have your mask on. Get out of here. Go. Now, everybody's, everybody's tense. Everybody's uptight. Rightfully so. We're protecting ourselves. We say that we're protecting you, but we're really protecting ourselves. Let's be honest. No, something has to lift of what we're going through right now. Something has to lift. Servants of God will hasten from place to place to place to place to place. Something has to lift. For, for Revelation 18, 1 to take place and the whole earth... The whole earth is lightened with his glory. Just like the three angels, that fourth angel is, is dependent on human messengers. When the earth is lightened with his glory, something has to lift that has everybody locked down right now. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. The people sitting in the great darkness have seen a great light. Ah, oh, that's today. All of which leads me to this appeal. All right? The time left in our pandemic lockdown needs to be spent in getting ready for this window to open. That's all I'm saying. I want you to think about that. I want you to talk it over the dinner table. You talk about it anyway. But I want you to think about it with others. We can't go anywhere right now. But rather than twiddling our thumbs... Rather than binge-watching our way through the holidays, binge-watching through Christmas, binge-watching through the New Year, binge-watching till I get back to Andrews University, rather than binge-watching wherever you are, students, right now on this planet, what if we took this opportunity, you and I, to somehow go deeper, to go deeper with Jesus? You know, a little book like Steps to Christ. Just read the Gospel of John, please, whatever. But we say, you know what? I think I'm going to take this opportunity. I want to tell you something. If you don't, listen, if you don't. Hey, you remember the, the parable, Jesus' parable, the 10 girlfriends? Everybody remembers the 10 girlfriends? They're all locked down. Pandemic midnight. They are locked down. They can go nowhere. They're just waiting. Five of them, while they're locked down, are replenishing their oil supplies. Five of them. They, their oil is not running out. When the midnight cry sounds, and they fly into the darkness. They are thoroughly equipped. They go with gusto for the kingdom of heaven. The other five, 
The other five are saying, mañana, mañana. I don't need to prepare now. Spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, I don't need any of those. I will someday when it really gets tough, when that, when that, when that window opens, then I'm going to do it. I want to tell you something, my friend. When that window opens, it'll be too late. Now, please listen carefully. When that window opens, it will be too late. Why? Because you have to be ready now. Those Christians had a, a, a brief moment. Boom. We have no idea what lies beyond this. But could it be that window of opportunity is being given to the friends of Jesus who have been told, you are the light of the world for me. You'll be the great light. They'll see the way you hug. They'll see the way you love. You'll be the great light. Could it be this window of opportunity is ours now? I don't want to be definitive, but I would like to suggest that when the window opens eventually, the time for spiritual preparation is ending. Because what leads you to put it off today will lead you to put it off tomorrow. And what leads you to put it off tomorrow will lead you to put it off when the window opens. And what leads you to put it off when the window opens will lead you to put it off until the door closes and five girlfriends are knocking on that. Let me in. I don't know who you are. Sorry, wrong address. Hey, listen, folks. We don't do Sabbath together to entertain each other, do we? I don't step into this pulpit every Sabbath and say, how can I entertain this little, this little uh, congregation that is diminished in size with the rest watching online, wherever on this planet? I don't, I don't think of worship that we just went through. I don't think of that as entertainment. I don't think of our Sabbath schools as entertainment. If, if our Sabbath schools are being planned for entertainment, that's a dead-end street. I wake up every single morning with one passion on my mind. I know what my mission is. My mission is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Everything I do from sunup until I go to bed is devoted to that. God, forgive me if I take my mind off of that. I live for that mission. You must live for that mission. It's not just mine. It's yours. My mission is to help you seize your mission to make ready a people prepare for the Lord. It's not going to be preachers that reach this planet one last time. Those servants of God are you. They're not a bunch of seminary professors. They're you and me. Make ready a people prepare for God. That's why we can't wait. You cannot put off for tomorrow, what your heart is, what the Holy Spirit is telling you, you must do today. You got something to make right? Make it right today. You got something to learn? Learn it today. You got a deep, a depth that you need to go to? Go there today. Don't wait. It's too late if you wait. I cannot say it anymore, so I'm sitting down. But I believe the light of the world has entrusted enough light to you so that you can walk out this door and when the pandemic does raise, that light will come shining like Dr. Joseph Veron. It'll come shining out of you. We can't wait. See this year's banner? Get ready. We can't wait. You signed up for this. You signed up for this. Get ready. Now. Amen. Amen. Amen.